Hey, 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 welcome back to the podcast, Printavo's Print Hustlers Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce from Printavo. Thank you so much for being able to join us today. We've got a really special guest coming up, Jacob Goodman from Fresh Prints, who they're doing uh, just about $40 million in sales as a shop. And so we're going to dive into how that worked. They bought a really small shop when they got started and really cranked it. I mean, they cranked it all the way up to be able to get it to where it is today. But real quick, uh, a couple things. Number one, Print Hustlers Conf 2022. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, PrintHustlers.com, November 5th, 6th, and 7th, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Got a ton of awesome stuff planned. Check it out, PrintHustlers.com. And then number two, Graphic Source is in a proud sponsor of Print Hustlers Conference and the podcast. If you guys need a solution to improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, Check out Graphic Source. They offer industry-leading outsourcing options for your shop to truly become a part of your team. A lot of actually print top of shops use Graphic Source pretty heavily, mainly for separations, uh, mock-ups, um, creative work. I actually just use them for that. Uh, some order management. Um, Steven's using them for store creation, digitizing, um, and customer service. So Give them a check. That's GraphX Source. Make sure to mention Printable Pod for the 50% off your first order, too. Easy way. You shouldn't be spending all day cleaning dirty screens. Easy Way's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster and more efficiently and will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. We appreciate you. Check out Easy Way. Next up, Multicraft. If you haven't heard of Multicraft underscore daddy and if you need ink supplies or daddy, Multicraft screen printing and digital supplies have been supplying the industry for over 50 years with top brands at competitive pricing. Also, again, Pod, another discount, 10% off. Check them out. They're a really awesome supplier, and Dave is great to deal with as well. Give him a follow. Last but not least, Supercolor. This is kind of different. Supercolor actually sent me this really cool PDF that they want to be able to share with everybody. So check this out. Basically, think about this. How can you heat transfer high color counts, gradients, and hard-to-print locations in a bunch more different tricks and tips? Well, actually, Supercolor created this PDF that they sent over um, that has a big, long guide to all of this stuff. Check it out, supercolor.com slash print hustlers, um, or click the link in the description and you can be able to see it. Not only that, they've also got a really cool pricing guide um, to be able to help or, you know, just to be able to show you how to price with heat transfers properly and for the most profit as well. Um, it has different types of transfers. It, it has how to pick a quality heat press. There's a lot of good stuff, hopefully to save you guys time and money. So again, supercolor.com slash print hustlers. I was pretty excited about this because I love just sharing all kinds of education. So get it down in the link in the description below. All right, let's jump into the episode. All right, Mr. Jacob. Today we've got Jacob Goodman out of Fresh Prints. So um, I actually saw an article uh, in entrepreneur.com magazine that said, this is the title, these college kids bought a custom t-shirt company. I love when the media always uses custom t-shirt company. <laughs> um, with their bar mitzvah money, now it's a $40 million business. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty at, cool. At first, at first, actually, also, um, 
I think when I when we first started running Fresh Prints, the 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 custom, labeling it as a custom T-shirt company also kind of always made my my skin kind of boil a little bit. But now <laughs> now, now I've embraced it. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's sort of like I remember just being into tech and everything as a kid. I was always like the IT guy for the family. It was like okay, Wi-Fi broke. All right, cousin called. Uh, I I can't turn on my laptop. It's like. Dude, I, I don't I don't know why your laptop's not turning. Re, <laughs> reboot it, turn it off, turn it back on, take out the batteries, yeah. do something, you know. But for sure, then you turn into the t-shirt guy um, when you have a shop, and <laughs> that's the natural promotion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was uh, a, a great. We were really appreciative of, of entrepreneur for for um, reaching out, diving in with us, writing writing that that story was, it was really humbling. And, um, I know it felt, I know it felt good for all of really our team to kind of have that recognition. And really, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many people behind Fresh Prince that have put in a lot of, uh, work and effort. So it was, it was definitely a cool moment. Does that type of media, like mainstream media help? And I, I mean, it, it feels like for our team at least, so we did the Inc 5000 thing, right? I think that helped a lot, uh, in two ways. One for, the internal team to see, like you're saying, it was really cool. And then also for recruiting. So it looked legit like, oh mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, if you're applying to a company and the company's like, yeah, we're in the screen printing space and you're like, huh? You yeah. know? And then, uh, but oh, they're on the Inc. 5 thought like it brings some sort of, oh, okay. Cool factor to it. it did you yeah. find the same thing or was there more? Yeah, that's that's all. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's always been it's always been a huge debate internally, um, like how much emphasis should we put on PR, or like PR kind of feels like a distraction. Like it doesn't it doesn't really fundamentally improve our product or our offering. It doesn't fundamentally like help our customers in any way. It doesn't fundamentally help our employees in any way. Like. Right is it just all for show and vanity? Like that, that's a, that's a serious conversation. And is it just wasted time and resources? Um, and, and we've, we've seesawed on that over the years. And uh, I think historically, like if you look at the company's history, we've, we've invested less in PR than, than most companies of our size. I think even a lot of people saw that article and they were like, wait, 40 million. What, where did, where did you guys come from? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've never, and we've been around for, you know, 10 years. Um, that's interesting. Is that, is that, was that the thought of like, I mean, in, and I see some shops do it a little bit more locally. Um, I don't know how many, much of your sales is local driven versus national, which maybe actually how much is it? Because that, that also plays a part too, right? Cause if it is, you know, some shops are maybe 80% within call it a 50 mile radius, you could see some benefit that that may bring, you know, if you're doing some sort of local events or uh, charity work or, or, or a cool new client, things like that. But how about you guys? Yeah, we're not, we're definitely not um, like uh, what, what I would describe as either local or hyper-local business. Um, there's no like, po- there's no like pocket of the U.S. that where that has like a disproportionate percentage of our sales. Um, Uh so definitely nationally distributed. Um, and you know, we really have two key markets and one of those is the 
collegiate market. So um, Greek life, collegiate administration, um, collegiate orgs. Um, that's one key area of the business. And then the other is um, the corporate market. So corporate gifting, corporate swag, corporate, corporate merge. Um, but yeah, uh, customers all over the country. So no, no, no particular reason, no particular region, um, that we focus on. So I'm, I'm going to read a quick paragraph from this article. Fresh Prince bought a failed clothing company that sold fraternity, sorority, and college branded merch. After pulling 16 K together, um, kind of familiar story. We, we pulled together maybe eight. Okay, I think to buy, uh, it was just equipment though, basically. Um, today they have over 625 campus managers to grow sales and have hit 40 million in sales with 290 full-time employees. That's a big operation. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually a little bit dated now. So it's. Oh, really? What's the, crazy. what's the updates? The head, head counts now almost 400 full-time. Um, Holy cow. So I, I think the interview for that was. Four, four or five months ago. I, I actually don't remember the exact interview date. Um, yeah, but we've continued to hire through. Yeah, we, we you know, it's <laughs> the, the part about the part about buying a, a, a failing business was probably a, li- a little harsh and not not the best way to paint it for the founders. Um, so I, I don't know if I would say that it was actually the business before it was failing. It was definitely it was a fledgling business and there was um, uh, like no, no real infrastructure. It was really just the two founders um, kind of trying to basically broker t-shirt deals on their own. And then we bought it from them with my business partners, uh, bar mitzvah money. um, And it was kind of off to the races from there. So, but yeah, almost, almost 400 people full time that, you know, 600 campus managers, um, and, and that's really been a lot of the foundation for the business. I'm kind of, I'm pretty curious as to buying the business versus, you know, starting from scratch and how you think about that. Um, but, you know, jumping into today, actually, what is, what is the corporate structure look like to manage a team that size? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, there's no kind of like silver bullet. It's, it's, it's really tough. And I think honestly, the hardest part is not even just managing the size, but managing how quickly the size changes. Because inevitably, what that means is every couple of months we have to reorg the organization, um, layer people, add new layers, um, introduce new managers and new leaders. Those could be promotions from within, which is um, where we tend to be very, very pro and big on um, growing by promoting from within versus hiring externally. Um, so it can be promotions from within into to people who are first time leaders, or sometimes we do hire externally and, and hire leaders with, with leadership experience. But regardless, every, every time we basically have to reorg, it's like very, very jarring. Um, so the basic way it kind of works is, um, organization a within the company grows, um, headcounts growing significantly. Um, everything starts to break. It starts to uh, get in shambles. Um, and then um, one of our senior leaders will say, "Hey, this, this organization needs to be needs to be reorged because the old structure that was working there, uh, the, the organization's now too big for it." Um, we reorg it. We try to re- rework it. 
um, and get everything back on track. And then like inevitably mm. in three months, the same thing will happen with that same organization or like some other organization in the company. So, but what are, but what are like the departments? So is it, is it like, there's a sales team, there's a marketing team, there's a yeah, so you know, account yeah. management team, what sales, uh, sales product. So there's tech product and physical product, um, art, which is all of our designers, um, engineering, um, uh, operations and supply chain, which we call logistics. Um, trying to think, think of if I'm missing anyone. We have a light, of course, a, a pretty robust licensing team, finance team. I really want to make sure I don't miss any team because <laughs> then I'm going to get <laughs> watching this. Um, but, but okay. So, so 290 to now 400, like, how do you add, you said this article was like six months ago or something. How do you add yeah. 110 people I mean, in six it's, months? It's brutal. Like, it, is it, is it, all right. Well, so there's two questions, right? Like one is where is that growth coming from? And then two, what, what breaks down? Like, are they mainly account management sales, uh, or just everything? Yeah. There's no like one single team that I just listed where it's like the overwhelming majority of our company is overrepresented in this department. So like most of those teams that I just like, if you actually look at all those teams, I mean, besides like finance is a smaller team for, as a headcount percentage or as a headcount number than most of those. And um, license, the licensing team is a smaller headcount team. But the other headcount, te- the other teams in terms of headcount are are fairly similar in terms of size. Um, so uh, there's not like one single team where it's like we are extremely heavy in X and this explains like 90% of our headcount. That's got that, it. That's not the case. But then where's the, is all the growth from the Greek side? Is it from the corporate side? Is it both? All of the above. So like, uh, both, both sectors of, um, our business have been growing quickly. Corporate is growing even faster just because that part of our business is younger. Um, and I think there was like, right. Like, you know, we had, we had, been around longer in collegiate. We had captured more of the collegiate market. Um, and like our, as of a couple of years ago, our, our corporate sales were, were, were really, were really insignificant. Um, and so just as we built out our corporate offering and our corporate gifting program, um, those sales have that, that those sales in that organization has naturally grown a lot. Um, and yeah, I mean, my, my, my guess is that, uh, that's going to be a very significant part of our, of our business for, for the years to come and is going to continue to be a very high growth part of our business. And so where do the sales come from, um, from a marketing perspective or like, are these organic or is it like, Hey, we, we're turning up Google ads, you know, way higher, or are you like jumping from campus to campus or is it a lot of outbound? Like what is really drive? Like what is the engine here? Yeah. That's, that's question. what I find fascinating, right? Is like the, the, with behind the growth, it's like, what's the flywheel that, that helps continue to drive it. And, yeah. and, and, and I know it could be like a combination of things too, but. Yeah. So, I mean, there's always look, I mean, pretty much anyone that asks this question in like any interview, like, will always be um, pretty open about the fact that there's just a component, like there's a component of it in, I think in any company where like some of it's just like the secret sauce and it's like, okay, some of the exact initiatives that we do, like 
we don't really talk about that much just because there's stuff that we've developed in house. Um, we've put a lot of effort and a lot of time into it. Um, sure. and you know, it's just, it's just, it's just not stuff that we go about talking about. Makes sense. But I will say like, I think the obvious, um, one thing that I can say and is like, I'll share in any interview. I think people always want to ask like, okay, like what's the demand engine? Like, like where is this all coming from? And, and yeah, how do you power the growth? And I think that, uh, it, I mean, it obviously makes sense that people want to know that. Um, and one of the obvious takeaways of course, is that it is a very, very much so an omni-channel, which you alluded to a very much so an omni-channel approach. Like, we don't, it's not like we just have one channel where I'm like, okay, yeah, we just spool up Google ads and like, that's where everything comes from. And if you spool it up, right, like a lot of demand is going to come. Um, there are a lot of different levers that we have to develop and press on and actually make sure we're working together in tandem. Um, and um, in order for it to really work well, um, yeah, I think like, I think you know, marketing and, and demand gen does have to be a robust function. Got it. Got it. So, and it, it's kind of similar for us, right? There's, there's Google ads, there's just general SEO and, and, and ranking well in Google. There's uh, retargeting ads, there's email, um, you know, there's uh, like downloadable things. Um, we don't do really any outreach, but that could be a channel too, but it, yeah, that makes sense, right? To to all have to work together, hit people a couple of different times to be able to and really I've start seen to that, close those deals. And I, I also have seen that, like, right, like marketing is something that's like very context specific for each company. Um, and like is very is very almost culture specific. Like you have companies that are just like, you know, any like just outbound just doesn't fit with their culture and they don't use they don't they don't do out like uh, like man, manual outreach and like um, and it that works for them right? right and then you have companies that like um, traditionally let's say like haven't really focused on SEO um, and are maybe just doing paid search or they're doing um, uh, just met you know paid search and manual outreach I don't know some combination and, and that really works for them and um, mm-hmm. you know I, I do think that you see like kind of every successful demand gen engine, every successful marketing team, they do have an, om- an omni-channel approach though. They, they are oh, saying sure. we have, we have multiple, multiple levels e- that we've Even companies on. smaller, absolutely. It makes sense, especially because it could be measured so well with the, with the tools and everything today, you know, w- with this journey from, you know, buying a shop for 16 K to today, what do you think were the companies? revenue breakpoints, you know, it's like where, where things really had to shift. Um, it, uh, so, so like, I feel like maybe around closer to a million in sales is like, okay, we, we need to start to get things in line. Then maybe 3 million was another interesting one in that we need to get true managers in place. I can't do everything. Um, maybe the next big one. So that, that sort of structure scales up until like 10 and then maybe at 10, it's like secondary level of management. And, and, you know, where do you think for Fresh Prince, it was those different, like, oh crap, this, 
you know, Rubik's cube has to be like rechanged again to, to put it back together. And then what did you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so almost on some level, right? Like that was kind of what I was saying at the beginning where, um, you know, and even now it feels like as we add head headcount quickly, um, the, I mean, the reorgs come, come very fast. Right. So like, um, finding something that, that breaks, but like in terms of like moments where it was like, Oh shit, things are really breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we got to like $8 million, we had to install a layer of management and revenue growth slowed down for a minute. And our, you know, up until then we had done like 50 to a hundred percent growth every year and, and really every year since pretty much we have too. Um, but in one, one particular year, I forget the exact year it was, but we were about eight million, six to $8 million in revenue. Um, growth just like really dramatically slowed, um, to like 15 to 17% and 15 to 17% growth is, you know, great by the way, but just in, in, in the moment when, when the context was we had put so many years of 50 to a hundred percent growth back to back, 15% didn't feel, didn't feel so great. For sure. Um, and we were, we were wildly below, um, our projections. Um, yeah. And it was a moment where like, we, we just had to install, a um, sales leadership layer. And that was at I, 8 million. Around around eight million, yeah. And what, I was. What do you mean by sales leadership layer? Sales management, yeah. So like, uh, we had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, our sales reps that um, were reporting to me, Josh, and um, Yolite at the time, um, who are are you know, my my two partners, and um, we on the business and. Um, I mean, we got to a point where they, they couldn't roll up to us anymore. Um, got it. Like we just, wow. You guys did the 8 million. Yeah. Holy cow. I feel like yeah. that would, uh, how, how many people were reporting to you guys? I, although I guess it was three. So maybe you could split it up into yeah, three. We, we could split it up, but it was a big number. Uh, I forget these. I mean, we, we pushed it, we pushed it further than most. Like I know, who, who, what type of what type of manager did you hire then? Like, was it like a seasoned sales rep? Was it internally? I mean, I remember it. So it was like one of the worst, mo- one of the worst moments of the company's history. Like, I remember it so vividly. We went through like I think I went through like eight, seven or eight people in a row who like they either quit or we had to let go of. It wasn't like I let go of all eight. Like it was just I had no idea how to hire for this role, and so I kept on messing mm. it up. And um, I at first was looking for people with some sales management experience. Hired them, then just said, "Okay, that didn't work. Maybe I just need someone with sales experience that I can groom into a manager." Hired some people um, with that type of profile. Um, I hired people in similar industries. I hired people with, um, and I, like I tried everything. And um, what, what would you say now, like now that I'm sure, you know, you've got the lessons learned from it. If somebody was in a similar situation, what, what do you think are the characteristics to hire better in the first or second time for that role? Um, yeah, it's kind of cliche advice, but like instead of a specific skill set or a specific profile, like I think the best hiring advice is always hire a missionary. 
right? Like hire someone who, and for us, you know, a big part of the mission is, has always been the campus manager program um, and, and enabling student entrepreneurship. And so like finding someone who, who that mission really spoke to um, and like was all about Fresh Prince's culture, was all about what Fresh Prince uh, uh, was setting out to do um, and was really talking about the culture and the mission of the company in their interview, um, like that, those people end up almost always being the best, right? They're just, like, they're just like really bought in. Um, what about like management experience? Do, do you think that that can, would help to contribute? So, so maybe one characteristic for sure is how much are they willing to self-solve problems and just drive forward and push forward in that, you know, missionary category? Like the question is like, how much, how much do we value someone with managerial experience? And like, how yeah, do you cause I mean, it? you think that, right. Uh, okay. So there's either two routes. One is somebody who shows some sort of management opportunity and you want to be able to give them, you know, the, the chance, but it sounds like you already have quite a few sales reps that are reporting up to you and your partners. So my default thinking is, all right, it sounds like somebody who has managed, you know, many people, um, can be able to help see around the corner and make less mistakes. I, I don't know what, like, is that true or what did you find? Um, I've never, I've always been skeptical to like comment on it so much. Cause it's never like I have ran a rigorous study of like, here's who we've hired. Um, and here, 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 here's their, their success and performance with me- that came in with management and people that we hired that came in without management experience. Yeah. Um, and like actually like separate those two cohorts up and, um, look at it. I mean, it, it could be something that we, that we looked at. It's, it's, it's a little hard. It's a little hard to control for every variable. I wonder if like a better way of me asking is like, what do you think of the characteristics that you found in that person that worked that made them good? So one you said yeah. is they're definitely missionary. Are there some others? Being a missionary is like head and shoulders above everything else. Okay. You know, okay. I really like, I like if you're going to get that right and everything else wrong, like you're probably good. <laughs> Got it. Like for the most part. Right. Like, yeah, sure. Like ability to learn quickly, like hundred percent. Right. Like that's a, that's a huge one. Like if, 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 it doesn't matter like what someone knows or doesn't know if they're like ready to learn and they can learn and they've demonstrated that they can learn fast. Not the, the problem with that one is like you, you oftentimes don't really know that until you hire someone. Um, so like you just kind of have to evaluate that on the fly um, and figure that out. But yeah, ability to learn is, is I would say probably is number two. Um, I mean, this kind of goes in line with being a missionary. Like, I think you get this because you're a missionary, but like unrelenting tenacity, like that's almost every role, right? Like there are some people who at the first sign of trouble will be like, Hey Jacob, this is never going to work because X, Y, and Z, like fill in, Mm -hmm. fill in whatever excuse you want to fill in. Right. And then like, they're using that excuse and, and a justification as a reason to, to stop pursuing the problem. Right. And then there are people who are like, I will not, I will not rest until this problem is solved, period. Like, that's just who I am. Like, I, I see the problem. I, I, I've set a goal for myself, like, regardless of what challenge is put in front of my face, like, I will solve it. I will get past this challenge. Like, those people are, are uh, those people have remarkably 
um, effective in, in any company and any organization that they join. And when you can find someone with like unrelenting tenacity, like you grab them immediately. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge one as well, but, but where does that tenacity come from? It often, it often comes from because you're a missionary and you deeply believe in the mission that you're, that you're trying to solve. And you believe in it so much that you're willing to work 12, 14 hour days to, uh, to, to go after that goal and that endpoint, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I think it ultimately all ties back to hiring missionaries. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, like the ability to learn, tenacity, like those, those are another two key characteristics. It's really, really like I'm not saying like, I, hey, I know how to screen for these skills like with a high degree of accuracy. It's really freaking hard. Like I, I think screening and hiring is, is – without a doubt, bar none, the hardest thing to do in a business. Like we, is there, a, <clears throat> is there a question that you found that helps detect for being a missionary? Um, no, honestly, I wish there was like, there's not, there's, there's not one, like you really just have to like listen intently and like get, try to get to try to get as many data points as you can on someone. Like how many interviews can you do with them? Like how many reference checks can you do with them? And like how good are those how good are those reference checks? Are they people that have worked with them really, really closely and like can speak to the to to their to their work product and 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 their workability? Um, you know, th- those are those are the types of things that you really want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I've I I like everyone else, I've been looking for the HR silver bullet for um <laughs> you know, 10, ten years and I'm I'm yet to find it. So um, if I if I do uh, if I do find that HR silver bullet, I'll, I'll I guess maybe I'll quit Fresh Prince and write a book, and that will be the most bought book in history. But I'm skeptical I'll, I'll ever find it. So. <laughs> um, do you guys print? Do you guys contract everything out, or do you print in house or combo? Uh, we contract pretty much everything out. Yeah, got it. Has that always been the case though, or did you? Was that like the uh, tra- or, was that a transition? Yeah, yeah, pretty much always. I mean, we've had conversations about like if we've wanted to bring stuff in house, but look, I mean, the truth is, is we have a lot of respect for our printers and the um, like, just just how technical it is and like how 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 much you have to invest in terms of resources. And, you know, you have to have really skilled labor. You have to know what you're doing. And, like, print quality is something that's easy to mess up. We have a, we have a lot of respect for that. And so, like, whenever we've, like, had a conversation about bringing it in-house, we're like, wait. Like, it would be kind of arrogant for us to believe, like, we can just, like, do this and, like, set this up and, and make this work. Like, For sure. Is that, yeah, is it's that a lot of work. Really- is that really the smart thing for us to do? Or like, is it much smarter for us to say like the actual printing itself, like this isn't our core competency. Like we should surround ourselves with really good partners who it is the, the right, core competency. Right. That's, that's really the approach we've taken. It's another, it's another thing where it's like, I don't think there's one specifically right answer. I think it's company specific. I think it's context specific. Um, I've heard companies that said like, Hey, we brought it in house and it was transformative for our business. I've heard companies that said, never bring it in house. Like we brought it in house and we like blew up. Right. Sure. Like, I don't know if you remember like famously kind of like the Teespring example. Yeah. Do you remember? 
Yeah, like yeah. That. No, we've had the founders on um, on the show to talk about it. I mean, it, it was hard. I, think, I, mean, they, they, I they think they were always pretty open that like they raised that round. I think it was from Andreessen or Coastal. I forget who, who it was. And like they like, you know, raised a bunch of money, opened that huge facility. And it was like, I mean, I think they from what I heard, they it was really, really, really difficult for them um, and really distract and, and was really distracting. Um, you know, I know two springs doing well now. Um, but I, I, yeah, I it's know hard. It's hard. I, I think it's definitely, I think it's definitely underestimated. Did, did you guys fundraise at all or no? Mm-mm, no. Are, are we always want, I mean, you know, people were obviously always egging us to, and we always, um, saw a path to, to build the business without fundraising. And we figured if, if we could, we should try to pursue that. And that'd probably give us a lot of flexibility and, um, be fewer cooks in the kitchen about like, uh, it'd be easier to get, you know, just me, me and my other two partners aligned on long-term vision than sure. a bunch of people and a large cap table of investors. So, um, I think ultimately like it made, it made it hard and painful in the beginning. And we had like, you know, for a long time, very few resources to do a lot of the things we wanted to do. Um, but I think in, in, in the long run, it's definitely been, been good for us. I see from your website, it looks like you guys have your own branded, gear it appears like that you push um certain knits uh these cool like greek polos and things like that um oh and and at the top actually it says retail too so uh, is this like a separate business is this like or or do you push this for the on the wholesale side or because like i see you could buy one like a terry shirt for example you could buy one for uh, forty-one dollars. Well, what's the, what's the thoughts of this business? Yeah, yeah. So we always uh, so it's it's definitely not separate. It's just a part of the Fresh Prince brand, um, and and we've rolled it into the company, and um, we put a lot of work um, into, like I said, kind of at the beginning, our our our, our fashion and product team. Um, so uh, that's that's really our tangible product team. Um, and for us, like the, the calculation was kind of simple. Um, like if, if, if we're going to be thought leaders in the space and we're going to continue to power the growth, like we can't just be a custom apparel company. Like we need to be a custom apparel and fashion company. We, we need to develop our own product. Um, and, that own pro- that that product has to be. Uh, I mean, it's really hard, but like that that product that, that product has to differentiate us, has to speak to current trends, and like has to speak to our audience in a compelling way where we have an offering that is uh, uh, very defensible and unique and, and makes us thought leaders in the space. Um, we we always knew that would help us create more brand power, um, capture more brand power, um, and make for. Um, a long lasting company, um, with, uh, a very powerful offering. How's it, um, so how's we, it been going? Obviously being, you know, it's interesting, right? Cause being printing in house, kind of different business, um, retail kind of a different business too, but it sounds like aligns more with, with like what you're saying. Um, you know, with the stocking design, you know, cut and sew all this stuff, is it yeah, good I mean, or is it, it new still or what? 
Yeah, it's actually interesting you say that because then you could also right you can make the same argument I just made about um, yeah like you said printing in house where it's like okay well can we actually can we actually pull this off like can we pull off developing designing <laughs> our own garments from the ground up um, yeah I mean actually you know those those same questions still existed um, but we just felt like it was too goddamn important like we were like. We, 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 we have to, we, we have to develop our own product. Like we, we, we need a product that Fresh Prince um, contributed to the world and created and like we're known for, and we have to create a company that can consistently release new product that's compelling. So like, it's not like we can just develop one product and be like, okay, we're done. Like we have to create, like you said earlier, and we were talking about demand engine. We have to create a, you know, a product engine um that like can self-sustain and now you know we do two product releases a year and anywhere between four to ten lookbooks a year um uh which is you know another expression of product creation and thought and what we want to be thought leadership so is it it like going what like does it feed the wholesale side as far as okay garments so it's less of really one-offs and it's more of, Hey, these are really cool new items. Uh, you know, do you want to buy a hundred for this, uh, event or whatever? Yeah. I mean, so our, our, we want to push on both levers, right? Like, um, we want, we want to also develop that retail side. And we think like, if we can develop that retail side, that unlocks a whole, a whole new part of the business, um, that is, is meaningful and can be really interesting and compelling, but also, yeah, on like the decorative side, um, actually saying, actually like pulling down styles and trends that haven't made it to the traditional, uh, distributors like an alpha brother or an alpha. And that allows you to be competitive in a, in a unique way because, you know, for example, this rugby crop tees, super cool looking. I don't think I've seen this on. Yeah. So like, right. So like our product team is, the goal is like for us to be inspired by current trends and like, like, the, like it's kind of obvious why, right? Like the way that our industry works is something gets hot in retail. Every retail brand like squeezes it for every single last piece, uh, for every last dollar they can. And then once it's no longer hot, it goes to one of the, one of the distributors that everyone buys from Alpha Broder, SNS, um, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and by the time it makes it into their program, no one gives a shit about the product anymore because mm-hmm. the retailers already squeeze all the juice out of it, mm-hmm. right? So we're like, okay, well, then we're trying to sell these products three years later that everyone's like, wait, where were you guys? Like this was this was cool many years ago, right? Uh, and remember, we're selling like our biggest market is collegiate, so like trend is really important. Like what 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 are people wearing on? on TikTok and Instagram, right? Like sure. that's, that's very meaningful to, and to that be able sell to direct and figure out. Your, and, uh, that gives a bit of an edge. That's pretty interesting. Do, and, yeah. and are you stocking this stuff too in, in everything? Holy cow. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah. cause like some of these products, you know, have, uh, if I click on this one, there's three different, no, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight colors small through extra large. Um, (laughs) so I mean, you're talking 32 variations. It's as Uh, as terrifying as it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it truly, it truly is. So when we, when we, that's why when we started doing it, 
I kind of looked at our part, you know, our, our business partners, we kind of looked at each other and we were like, are we crazy? Like, is this crazy? Right. Like, are we like, are we going to blow our brains on this one? Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just one of those moments, right. Where it's like, there's no, like you can, we, you can do as much modeling as you want. And we did tons of modeling. Right. But like, ultimately you, if one of those inputs is like way different than what you thought it was going to be, yeah, um, like you're left holding the bag and like For the sure. model doesn't matter. And none of us had really any historicals to know what those inputs would be. So yeah, just like it's a huge bet. It's a huge swing. It, it could have been, it could have been really painful if it, if it, uh, if it didn't go well. And um, you know, we were obviously planning and putting ourselves in a position of like, okay, how do we contingency plan for, for what happens if it doesn't go well? And like, how do we um, make sure we're making a big enough bet, but not a bet that's too big that it's like really, really, really painful. Right. Um, and that's what we tried to balance. Right. Do you follow um, any sort of business leaders out there or interesting books for owners yeah. or leaders or what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I, have some, I, have, I actually have some, some relatively strong opinions here. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so favorite, favorite management and leadership book, like hands down is, um, high output management, like without a question. Like, oh, I, okay. Uh, have, have you read, have you read high output management or no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm adding it right here. Yeah. It's a great book written by Andy Grove. Um, was written in the I think it was written in the eighties. I don't think it was seventies. I think it was written in the eighties. Um, pretty, pretty unbelievable staying power. Like still a, a, a lot in that book is like very relevant to today. And whenever I have a, a, a new leader that is like required reading. Um, and you know, if, if someone says they want to be a leader or a manager, I, I, I make them read it. And if they don't, then I, I know they weren't that serious about being a leader or a manager, read it multiple times. I, I think every time you'll get something new out of it. Um, I've always also really, <clears throat> really liked, uh, Keith Robois has a great lecture in Stanford's how to start a startup class, um, about it's, I think the title of the lecture is how to operate and it's, it's a fantastic lecture. Like he, he actually references high output management a lot. Um, and you know, he's, he's very open about the fact that a lot of his like Source, source material does come from Andy Grove and, and that book, but he has a, a lot of uh, new ideas to add as well that, that Andy Grove doesn't cover. And that's just a great um, uh, uh, lecture. And okay. uh, I mean, you know, from, from everything I've heard about Keith Boyce, he's like pretty, pretty great manager, pretty great, pretty great operator. So I know he's been successful many, many times over. Another management one is, um, uh, I mean, those are really like, like have been two of like the core source material for me for like a while now that I've really mm -hmm. loved. Matt Mottry has like a great open sourced um, Google doc. Um, that's like basically a guide for, uh, I was about to say first time founders, but not, not even first time founders, just like any founder or leader. Matt um, Mottry, how do I spell that? Yeah, M A T T M O C H A R Y. Okay, I think it's called the Great. It, it is called the Great CEO Within. Um, and he, um, serial entrepreneur in uh, Silicon Valley, 
he's now an executive coach and um, have coached a lot of, or some of the, the, the most prominent startup CEOs of you know, the past 10, 20 years. Um, and oh, yeah. Here's the book. And, uh, it, it, so if it, you it, Google it the great CEO Google. thing, Google it's Docs, Google you'll yeah. pull it up. So completely free. Anyone can, anyone can go pull it up and read it. He's, he um, um, opened it up and it's, that's, that's a, that's a great one too. John Doerr wrote a book, wrote a book called uh, Measure What Matters, which is great. And uh, that gives a lot of insight into OKRs and how to set them and uh-huh. using OKRs as, as, as a goal setting framework. Andy Grove was actually, so um, now OKRs are like everywhere. Like everyone talks, especially it seems like the last 10 years, like literally every company uses OKRs. Um, but and for the folks that don't know, um, OKR stands for objectives and key results. And, and basically the whole premise is you want to be able to give a, res- a result and let people create Oh wait, is it the other way? It's like one where basically you set the goals and then people create the stuff to hit the goals, which is. Yeah. So, so the basic idea is right. Like the, the, the problem with like traditional goal setting or KPI setting is like, you set a goal and you set a number and like you're, you're catering and you're working towards a number. But the question of like why this number matters is often unclear. It's like, well, the number matters because the CEO said it was an important number. Right. It's like, okay, that doesn't give us a lot of context. And like that doesn't enable people to actually march towards some, something meaningful. And also um, uh, it's not very inspiring, right? So like, are people going to get up every day excited to run through a brick wall for just like a number on the screen? Probably not. Um, so what the OKR framework does is it identifies the objective, which is usually the qualitative, like um, where are we going, right? Like what are we actually trying to accomplish? Um, and then uh, the KRs are the measurable quantitative. Um, uh, the key uh, results. Yeah. Exactly. The key results are, the, are, are what you can actually measure that if you satisfy the KRs, if you satisfy all the key results, um, you should structure the OKR in a way where the objective is satisfied. Um, and and so then there's like actions to- underneath that help you accomplish the key result. And then you can do it like what's interesting is we've been doing it and each team will have them. So basically, uh, you know, an objective for marketing, maybe we need to drive X amount of new leads to the sales team. Um, and then the leader there creates the key results and measures it. And, you know, and then the team underneath could be like, all right, if the key result is this, I need to create, if that, that may be my objective, let's say I work on the marketing team. Well, one of the key results could be, you know, uh, uh, profitably drive a hundred leads this month. Okay. How am I going to do that? So then my key results add up to the hundred and, you know, and it can kind of break down the tree again and again. But- yeah. So that's like, that's like the beauty. That's another like, um, uh, great part that John Doerr talks about a lot as well. in in measure what matters is having objectives and key results allows you to actually like plot the OKRs of each of, of the company, each team within the company. And then like, you, you can theoretically like as large as your org is continue to set them up. Right. And, 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 um, uh, smaller sub teams can have them and you can go and you can set them all the way down to the individual level. Right. And then you could look up and make sure that like 
all of those goals are actually aligned and like one team's goals that they're setting don't clash with the company's OKRs or one team's goals don't clash with another team's uh, OKRs and that there's actually like full alignment and you could see it across the entire company. And a lot of times, right, like especially as companies get bigger, um, goals, you're going to find scenarios where, where goals don't align. Um, right. and, then, and so this allows you to like actually easily kind of see that and uh, be like, start asking questions. Hey, what's going on here? Why doesn't this line up with this other, what this other team is working on? Or why don't, why don't these OKRs line up with the company's OKRs? And um, what, what do we need to change to, to get back on track and, 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 and to get alignment? Um, so that, that's that John Doerr wrote a great book about it. Um, Andy Grove was actually the one who invented and is credited with inventing the OKR framework. Um, and John Doerr uh, worked for Andy Grove. Um, I, I don't remember how long for, but I, I know he did work for Andy Grove at Intel um, and uh, really learned about the framework there. And then famously brought it into uh, uh, Google. Um, and I think once, once Google really, um, started adopting OKRs, then like you kind of saw really a lot of others adopt them as well. Cool, Jacob. All right. I think this is a good episode. I think there's a lot of kind of cool tidbits in here. Is there anything that I miss that's, that's unique about Fresh Prince? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, one of the owners, so I think there's a, a lot unique, but, um, uh, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm the most unbiased, uh, <laughs> opinion. Um, but yeah, check us out. I mean, uh, freshprints.com and, um, always welcome anyone to shoot me an email. My email is Jacob at Fresh Prince. Um, cool. if you want to connect and, um, yeah, appreciate you having me on Bruce. It's, it's great to chat and, um, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Printavo Printouts Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce from Printavo, Mr. Jacob Goodman out of Fresh Prints. Uh, you can find that article about them too if you just search freshprintsentrepreneur.com and be able to pull it up. All right, I'll see you on the guys on the next episode. Later. <laughs>